Al Jazeera podcast. The Women's World Cup final kicks off on Sunday, the sport's most successful tournament yet. There's been rapid growth in the game, but is it a level playing field between richer and poorer nations? How far can the sport go for female footballers? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. Right, let's meet our guests from Toronto, Canada. We're joined by Shireen Ahmed, a senior contributor with CBC Sports, who's been covering the World Cup. From Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, it's uh, Asha Komogisha, uh, a former professional athlete and sports journalist. And from Sittard in the Netherlands is uh, Fakanda Motaj, who's a professional footballer for the Dutch club Fortuna Sittard in the women's first division. She's also captain of the Afghanistan women's national team. A warm welcome to you all. Uh, Shireen, this World Cup has been a huge success by anyone's measure. To what do you attribute that success? I think that we have to give a nod to New Zealand and Australia, co-hosts of this incredible tournament, for really providing a blueprint. This is my third World Cup that I've attended, Women's World Cup, and the country is absolutely in love with women's sport. It is being supported publicly. It's being supported politically, and I think that's the difference, how the game can grow. And they've really offered the world a map on how to be able to do this in a way that's not not toxic, and that just provides a lot of excitement for the beautiful game. Asha, it's great to see you. You were here with us in Doha at Al Jazeera for the, for the Men's uh, World Cup at the end of, uh, of 2022. Um, this, the women's game is growing in popularity worldwide, of course, but, I mean, this tournament has been something else, hasn't it? It's been incredible. And the fact that it's been, you know, down under uh, a country like Australia and New Zealand that really embrace sports in general, but also that have embraced, you know, women's sports. Last year, we saw impeccable, you know, attendances at the FIFA Women's Basketball World Cup and now at the FIFA Women's World Cup. We're just seeing, you know, a lot of um, encouragement, a lot of uh, people embracing women in sports and really just going and buying tickets and making sure that they take young girls to be inspired, you know, at the World Cup and the numbers, but also just generally online. There's been more interest than what we saw in uh, 2019 in France. Of course, it was a perfect platform, but now it's really gotten to a very high level and it's, you know, just great to experience. It is. It is indeed. Fakunda, uh, uh, was this tournament always going to be a success um, or, or do you think something else is at play here i definitely believe it's a huge success the tournament and women's football is definitely headed in a positive direction and i think one of the key contributors to the success is just expanding the format from 24 teams to 32 and replicating it like the men's world cup and because of that we see so many new, new nations taking part and debuting in this women's world cup and on top of that, the success has been massive and incredible. From the six confederations, um, each confederation has had teams that have won at least one match. So it's definitely very successful, and it's headed in a positive direction. You, you think opening it up to 32 teams was a good thing then? I mean, it, it's, it served the game well and, and um, hasn't just highlighted the disparity in ability levels uh, between various parts of the world. With the expansion of the World Cup, you see that 
that the teams that deserve to be at the world stage are there, of course, but also other nations that, you know, deserve to develop and grow the women's game and truly show that uh, the Women's World Cup is a global tournament. So regardless of the scoreline, regardless of whether your nation is losing 6-0 today, I think 10 years down the road, it's really going to significantly impact the women's game and only benefit it. Shireen, what have the highlights of this tournament been so far uh, for you, both off the field as, as well as on it, before we get to talk more about the, the, the issues here? I think one of the things, and just highlighting what Farkunda had said, is that, you know, the expansion is really important. And you just mentioned the disparities between the team and the way that they're supported financially in the struggles is actually a part of the conversation and a part of the culture and the ecosystem of women's football globally. And these are things that we can't separate. I mean, a lot of people, it's easy for, you know, media to separate what's happening on the pitch and off, but they're really quite connected. And you've got, you know, debut teams that made it beyond the group stages, which is incredible. Morocco was debuting at this World Cup, only the second team in the Women's World Cup history to ever go to the knockout rounds, the round of 16. And I think that's really important and also to have conversations that continue. And before we get to the issues off the field, truly, but highlighting issues that occur as a part of the growth of women's football. And one of the things I'm most excited about is the conversations being had by support supporters and by media, but what the type of things that are happening, good and bad, in women's football. And those conversations haven't always occurred. So it's really important that they, they are happening. Asha, would you agree with that? And would you, would you agree that opening it up to 32 teams was the, was the right thing to do? Absolutely. Um, I mean, even from a, an African point of view, now we get to see, you know, uh, new teams that are competing in women's football. In the past, it's always been like Nigeria, Cameroon, Ghana. But just seeing these, you know, players going to that stage, debutants like Zambia and Morocco getting into those conversations, playing friendly games in the lead-up to the Women's World Cup and saying, OK, we want to see where do we stand, you know, at the global level. So just, you know, we hope also that, you know, if it can um, continue like this and maybe FIFA can also have a conversation around saying, OK, for the first time we've seen three African teams leaving uh, the group phase and going to the round of 16, can we expand the number of slots that the African teams are getting because in a continent with uh, 54 countries getting only four slots is not enough. Because what that means is if this year you have Zambia and then they're not in the top four um, in the next, you know, four years, then that generation is gone. So, but if you expand the number to maybe eight teams, then we can have a different conversation and have them compete every year, year in, year out, and uh, continue to get more exposure. So I think that, you know, expanding um, the format has given us an opportunity, you know, to get some very nice stories, you know, like Colombia, like Jamaica, you know, being part of these conversations on the global stage. Anasha, how, how big is, is the women's game? How much support does it have in, in Africa? There's immense support, you know. Now the federations are starting to think, you know what, there could be a gold mine here. You can start by the beautiful and incredible story of Morocco. Three years ago, they didn't really have a women's football strategy, but the federation sat down and said, look, if we want to compete globally, we have to do the right things. They went and hired uh, Reynald Pedros, who obviously had won two uh, Women's Champions League titles with Olympic Lyon, brought him to Morocco, gave him the same facilities that the men's team that went to the semifinals of the World Cup are using. If anything, they were actually staying in the same hotel in the lead-up to 
uh, the World Cup that the men stayed in when they were going to Qatar. So, you know, things like that, you know, um, having Zambia, for example, playing uh, friendly games with uh, a team like Germany and actually beating Germany in the lead up to the World Cup. Those are the kind of conversations that we need, but it has to get better. We need more teams and more investors and more people that make key decisions to embrace women's football. And this also means things like, for example, getting women's football on television. And that means in terms of showing the leagues week in, week out. We're seeing some of the countries do that. Uganda, for example, has uh, the Women's Super League on uh, on uh, FUFA television, which is uh, the national, um, you know, federation TV. So that, you know, helps people continue to see these women play, not just once in four years when they go to the World Cup. Fakunda, I mean, as we said at the beginning, you're a professional footballer. Uh, you play with uh, Fortuna Sittard in, in the, the women's first division in, in the Netherlands. Uh, of course, we're, we're talking about the World Cup, which is international level. It's getting a, a lot of attention. What is the situation at the domestic league level? How does your life as a professional footballer compare to your male counterparts? Well, the Women's World Cup is directly related to the domestic leagues as well. So what we see, the pattern almost that we see is that we have a Women's World Cup or we have these huge international tournaments, whether it be the UEFA uh, Cup or the Champions League final. And so after uh, events like this take place, which we have a lot of momentum, a lot of attention, um, it doesn't necessarily always translate to the domestic leagues. So although the domestic leagues are heavily investing, they are uh, building a professional infrastructure for their players, there is still a huge disparity that does exist. And although we are, you know, headed in a positive direction, I would still like to see that increased amount of uh, fan base, uh, infrastructure, attention to really growing the women's game at the domestic level um, and ensuring that it is consistent and sustainable. Shireen, how, how does the women's game keep the momentum going after this tournament? I mean, after the last World Cup and until, what, I, I think... Until the Euros last year, there seemed to be a frustrating lull. I think one of the things to remember is that we shouldn't just pay attention to women's sport every quadrennial. It shouldn't just be at mega tournaments like the Olympics or like, you know, um, the Women's World Cup. And I think that the interest in, in the women's game itself needs to continue. You have in the finalists in Spain and England, you have two of the most, you know, exciting, invigorating domestic leagues in the world, the Women's Super League and then La Liga Femenina in Spain with teams that are really, really enthralling. And I think we need to look even a little closer. I mean, I'm in Canada, and we don't even have a domestic women's league here. We have a proposed one, and that's really important. To continue to support the women's game at the grassroots level is really essential. And even if that means supporting, you know, an NCAA team or a university college team, these are all or, or development teams and youth teams, which is really important. And I mean, those are where the stars come from. Those are where the next generations come from and when you speak with players who are also advocates because remember adrian that women's athletes also become advocates for women's sport and the growth and sustainability of it um, which is something that men players don't actually have to do um i think we should remember to keep supporting at those levels that you know the product we know is incredible the ticket sales the attention the broadcast numbers tell us that people are heavily invested i remember a time when the lionesses did 
didn't get very much public support. I was in France in 2019 and couldn't find a Les Bleu kit anywhere in the stores. So, I mean, I see the growth now, and I hope that change, and I hope that change is here to stay. Okay. Asha, as Shreem was saying, I mean, there, there is growth. Money is starting to be invested in certain parts of, of the world. What more needs to be done, for instance, to get investment into football in, in places in, in, in Africa, the less affluent places in Africa? Well, to be honest, you know, it's um, really uh, an ecosystem that we have to change. Because when we talk about women's football and people talk about, you know, um, we're not able to see these women. We need more broadcast, you know, broadcast partnerships. You know, in the lead up to the Women's World Cup, uh, the current one going on, uh, there were issues, for example, with the top five uh, countries in Europe not being able to buy uh, the rights. So those small things affect, you know, the growth of the game. And yes, we talk about, you know, a lot of the limelight happening maybe around the UEFA Women's Champions League. We saw the big numbers, you know, of fans that went to the Camp Nou to watch Barcelona in England. It's the same thing. But from a global perspective, we need more people to, to watch women's football week in, week out. That impacts, you know, the commercial revenue that comes around the game. And also the decisions really from the federations to embrace women's football. It's not a competition. We're not saying that uh, women want to be better than men. It's really what you invest in the men should be the same that you invest in the women. We've seen that growth, you know, even from uh, teams like Real Madrid and Manchester United that embrace women's teams way later than the, the big boys in, in the game, you know, Arsenal, Manchester City, Chelsea. But now you can see that uh, those two teams are competing, you know, at a favorable level. So when you take it, you know, to the club level in the rest of the countries across the world, that's where the conversation needs to be had. Yes, we talk about EcoPay, but that EcoPay comes from do we have the same opportunities when it comes to investment? And those are the things that we need to be talking about. Fakunda, can you ever see a time when uh, professional players like you are not only paid as much as your male counterparts, but enjoy the same working conditions and, and basic support? I can visualize, and I'm very optimistic, that we will have um, even better, um, you know, infrastructure, work opportunities, um, and it's just a matter of time. However, I personally do not like to compare men and women's football, as great as they both are. Um, women's football has received attention, Lily, sorry, received attention, rather, uh, much later than the men's game. And I think people are just starting to understand how much impact, how much passion and dedication and drive female athletes genuinely have, both on and off the pitch. And so do I think the pay gap will uh, reduce? Yes, I do. However, again, I'm very optimistic that uh, others, not just female athletes, are the ones advocating for this, but it's the whole global community that sees the need for female athletes to be at the forefront. Shireen, coming back to the challenges that you were talking about at, at grassroots uh, level, equipment, facilities, coaching, support, what, what about things like, like kit and footwear? Are sportswear manufacturers making enough uh, gear specifically for women rather than churning out unisex stuff or or stuff for men that women are, have to have to make do with 
I think one of the important things is the women's game is an incredible product on its own. And I agree with, you know, my co-panelists that comparing it to the men's side is not something we should do. In many uh, leagues around the world and in many federations, women's kits aren't even available. And I, you know, live in Canada and you weren't able, you're not able to buy a women's kit, a national team women's kit, even after they won the Olympics in 2020. So, I mean, you look at that and you look at what are the opportunities and, and you know, that's something that's really important to say. And these are just part of other psychosocial factors. We've seen increased injuries in ACL, uh, anterior crucial ligaments, and that's also because of environment. It's not just because of the pressing of the athlete. There's so many things like resources, facilities. As previously mentioned, Morocco is one of the only federations to provide really what they do. Their facility outside of Rabat is like one of the only ones in the world, and they're the only league in the world that has two tiers of professional women that actually are remunerated. So there's so many things here. It's not just about pay. It's about support. It's about broadcast. Is it being televised? Are there, you know, we know that in North America, 4% of all broadcast is women's sport. That's not a lot, Adrian, 4%. Mm -hmm. There's so many leagues, there's so many opportunities. And, you know, people need to keep investing, not just in a, and in, in, yes, there's the, the money numbers and people will argue that, you know, it, the product isn't, you know, worth it. You, you know, women shouldn't be paid equally, but labor and valuing that labor is extremely important. And we know what the growth, the women's, women's game has skyrocketed and people are willing to pay. And in Australia, Matilda's jerseys have completely outsold the soccer ruse. So this there's and that's a country where soccer may not be football may not be the number one sport. You know, it's Aussie rules football, but still the point is that there's a place for this. There's a place for women's football to exist and to thrive. And in terms of the other things, I mean, the social issues, political issues around the teams, those are very much an important story. And a quick point I want to make, it's not only countries in the global South considered Africa or Asian or South America that aren't being paid. Canada is very much in a dispute with its own federation. And the U.S., you know, has previously sued its employer. So I really want to make sure that we understand that not providing resources to women's sport is not just an issue in the global Self. Usher, is, is the game adequately meeting the health needs of, of women players? I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, of the, the types of injury that, that women suffer uh, when they play football as opposed to men, given that much uh, sports science research is, is focused on the, on the male body and not the female body. Yeah, absolutely. And these are conversations, you know, that um, are very important for us to have. And thank you for the question, Adrian, because we need researchers, we need the medical world to look into that. Why are these female athletes getting these um, injuries, but also really to have open conversations, for example, about menstrual periods, you know, um, what is, for example, the jersey type? What are the sizes of the shots? You know, are the players comfortable? Can we also have conversations about sports bras? Because these are things that, you know, when you look around, people think, oh, it's obvious. But you'll find that some of the athletes are playing in bras and not really sports bras. And that affects, you know, the way that they play because you're talking about 90 minutes of a football game. So I think that, um, you know, federations and decision makers and also really organizations, even if they're activist groups, you know, have to openly talk about this and see how to grow okay. the game. Because it's not just about pay, 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 pay. It's about things like that. For Koda, I'll come to you in, ju in just a moment because there are, there are two specific questions I want to ask you right at the end. Um, uh, so bear with me a minute. Shireen, how does the women's game overcome 
cultural and social challenges that exist in, in many parts of the world. I mean, I mean, many women involved in the sport have experienced online abuse, for example. Yeah, I mean, there's a culture of toxicity, certainly, and you'll have, you know, misogynists and people who argue that you shouldn't, you know, play and, you know, you can't necessarily resolve all issues. And some regions are very specific to the type of abuse they get or the type of discrimination that the women face, whether it's homophobia or anti-Muslim sentiment. And quite frankly, in France, and this needs to be said, Muslim women who want to wear hijab can't even participate in sport domestically because of a hijab ban that exists there. And I mean, there's so many issues that we can discuss about this. But one of the things we need to do is realize and understand that football needs to be accessed safely by women all over the world and see what their needs are and look around and see how they can be supported. And the other thing is to not to shy away from questions that are really important. And just as Usha just mentioned, whether it's issues regarding menstruation or needs of those athletes, these are very specific needs and things that are important to talk about. And whether, you know, there's been criticism in the U.S. team and how they navigate other space, their culture and team culture will be very different than someone like in England. But you've seen solidarity from all these players, whether it's facing sexual abuse in the sport with some of these teams, particularly Haiti, have had to overcome. I mean, this is these are really important things, and we can't shy away from those discussions, Adrian. It's important to recognize and celebrate the joy of the game while addressing the challenges at the same time. And Asha, just very briefly, would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. We have to look at both sides of uh, the story. No one is trying to say that it's only the positives that are happening, you know, with uh, women's football. Because when you look at, for example, the Women's World Cup, and you see uh, that a journalist was asking, you know, the Moroccan captain about LGBTQ and if she has any teammates on the team that are playing. And this is ahead of their first ever game at the Women's World Cup. They could have chosen to ask a different question, but that's what they chose to do. So there's a lot really to talk about. Yeah. Uh, Fakanda, as we said at the beginning of the program, you're, you're also the captain of, the, of Afghanistan's women, uh, women's national side. What is the future of the women's game in Afghanistan? Uh, where is your team right now? Well, unfortunately, like many people might be aware right now, since uh, the fall of Afghanistan in 2021, we actually don't have an active national team. So what that means is the de facto government has banned women's sport participation in general, among many other bans, such as uh, rights to education, other basic necessities. Now, that being said, since 2021, the Afghanistan women's national team, the players that were within the country have uh, been evacuated to Australia, to Portugal and other parts of the world. And players such as myself who belong to the Afghan diaspora that grew up outside of Afghanistan obviously still remain outside of the country. Now, the issue we're facing right now is that because of the de facto government, our football federation, it would not be safe for them to uh, restart women's football. Now, the solution to that would be that FIFA, as the governing body of football, needs to intervene and be able to pr provide a sustainable plan for us to return to sport in a safe manner and in a way that no one would be affected and in a way that we can ensure the sustainability of our women's program and show that female athletes and Afghan women are capable. Okay. Now, that is the situation as it remains, and uh, we hope to find right. a resolution very soon. Fakunda, here, here we are. You're, you're on Al Jazeera. You're, you're speaking to, to women who, who can see us in, in Afghanistan, women who aspire 
to, to, to play football. They, they love the game. You, they look up to you as, as, as their hero. What, what would your message be to them right now? My message is never lose hope. Life is extremely unpredictable, and we've seen it time and time again. And I am optimistic that there are better days ahead. We all have to be in this together, and I think together we will find a solution to the issues that we are facing. Let's hope so. Many thanks indeed, uh, Shireen Ahmed, Asha Komogesha, and Fakunda Mutaj uh, for taking part in today's discussion. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Katia Lopez-Horayan, Fungi Nguyen, and Hannah Shakir. Studio sound was by Eli Alhani. The program was edited by Anil Anandan, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Thursday for our next edition. This week on The Take... It might be Donald Trump's biggest indictment yet. What will it mean for the former president and the future of the United States? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.